Well, remain standing and let's everyone grab your copy of the scriptures and open it up to the book of Romans this morning to chapter 8. We'll continue working through Romans chapter 8, wonderful chapter already in just the first four verses. We've been blessed to, to learn from the Lord. We're going to read, we'll read beginning in verse 1, we'll read down through verse uh, 13 this morning. Verse 13, let us hear this word that God has given to us, his inspired word spoken by him and given to us for our instruction. And beginning in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your word that you have given to us. We ask, Lord, that your Spirit would now attend the preaching of your word. We pray that you would work in each and every person here, uh, man, woman, and child, Uh, that we would give attention to your word as it is preached, that we would be kept from distraction and from temptation to wander in our thoughts. We pray, Lord, that you would then teach us, that you would encourage us, that you would uh, convict us, that you would do what you have deemed to do this morning through this time. And we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Well, let me remind you as we begin this morning that the theme of this marvelous eighth chapter of Paul's letter to the church in Rome is the security and the assurance of the believer. That is the the gift that God is giving to us here in this chapter. And it is a great gift, and it is a great chapter. Uh, All of this, all of the gift of this chapter, all is centered around that great benefit that is written of in verse 1, where it says, There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No greater gift uh, could be considered than the fact that we are no longer condemned, uh, that we are right before God, that he accepts us. Uh, His holy majesty accepts us sinful people because of what Christ has done. The whole rest of this chapter then is working out the the wonder, the the truth of that, that assertion there that there is now no condemnation. It expands upon it. It shines the light on it from different angles, and we are enjoying that immensely. I am, at least. Hope you are as well. Two weeks ago, we looked just at that first verse and saw how wonderful it was. 
Last week, we began to uh, work through the rest of the chapter in verses 2 through 4. Last week, we saw that, um, that that is true, that there is no condemnation for the believer because of the fact that God has done through His Son, Jesus Christ, uh, what the law couldn't do. He has, Paul said, uh, fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. He has caused those to be met in us, not by our meeting them because we can't meet them. But he has done it through Christ and through he, what he has done. We are seen by God as fulfillers of his law because Jesus Christ fulfilled the law. In our place, in our stead, he paid for our breaking of it, which is something that Paul says that the law, as I mentioned, weakened by the flesh, could not do. If it was to be done, it had to be done by one who was God and man. And we learned last week uh, the wondrous truth that that is exactly what God has done. We have a question this morning, and that is, who are the recipients of this most wonderful work of God, wherein He fulfills the law on their behalf and renders them righteous in His sight? Is it all men? Well, absolutely not. In verses 5 through 11, Paul is going to set out to describe those who are the recipients of this blessing, those who have this benefit, those of whom it is true that there is now no condemnation, those for whom there is now no guilt, uh, those for whom there is now no curse, no fear of penalty. And in these verses, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 11 this morning, we plan to see in the first part of that, in verses 5 through 8, that there is an essential distinction that is drawn by the Apostle between, well, to put it simply, between Christians and non-Christians. To use Paul's terminology here, uh, the according to the Spirit people and the according to the flesh people. And then in verses 9 through 11, Paul turns particularly back to his readers, the ones to whom he is writing, uh, that includes us this morning as well as the church in Rome. And he will speak to them of two particular benefits that we receive for uh, the benefits of being a Christian which are given through the work of not one and not two but we will see all three members of the glorious divine trinity the overall statement here in verses 5 through 11 as we shall see is that there is no condemnation because those who are in Christ are indwelt by the Holy Spirit which places them in an essentially different realm than those who do not have God's Spirit within them by faith. And Paul begins then, and we will begin this morning, by looking at that distinction, at that essential distinction between the Christian and the non-Christian. Let's start by looking back at verse 4, just briefly, where we ended last week. Paul said that that God sending His Son in the likeness of human flesh as a sacrifice for sin, that it fulfilled the requirements of the law on their behalf. As I mentioned, it says that God sent His Son, verse 4, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And we made note of those two terms that he brings up Um, Right there at the end, those who walk, or particularly one group, but it speaks of two, those who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And in using really those two terms there, uh, he gives a descriptive title to both those who are in Christ, Christians, and those who are not. There are those, he says, who walk according to the Spirit. That's the us of chapter 4. That's the ones who are recipients of these great blessings. That um, is you and I this morning, Christian, those who walk according to the Spirit. But then he also, by contrast, says that there are those who walk according to the flesh. And he says that is not who receives this blessing. That That is not who has this righteous requirement of the law fulfilled. 
And since he says that Christians are those who do not walk according to the flesh, then non-Christians must be the ones who do walk according to the flesh. And these then are two groups, two mutually exclusive groups, two groups that are composed of, of different people at any given time. One cannot be part of both groups at the same time. Two categories, two categories that, that contain within them all people ever. There are those who Paul says walk according to the Spirit, and there are those that Paul says walk according to the flesh. And he says that the righteous requirement of God, the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled in those who walk according to the Spirit and not to those who walk according to the flesh. Also remember that I mentioned right at the end of the, the sermon last week that, that these are descriptions. These are not those two statements about those who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Those are not exhortations saying if, if you want to be part of this group that, that has had all of this taken care of, that you need to do certain things. That's not what he's doing here. He's just giving a title, giving a description to, to these two groups. They are descriptions of those who walk in these different ways because that is a distinction or, or a, a description of these two distinct groups. And then so when Paul comes to verses 5 through 11 here, he continues with those categories. Verses 5 through 9 is about the distinction between those who walk according to the Spirit and those who walk according to the flesh. That is, he's asking the question and answering the question, what is true about those who are Christians and those who are not? Specifically regarding the orientation of their life. You know, in accordance with their life. They are those who walk according to the flesh or according to the Spirit. When it talks about walking according to something, that's what it's talking about. In accordance with a certain type of, of, of mindset, in the realm of flesh and Spirit. Uh, the, the alignment of their life is what is being discussed here. And he talks, uh, if you noticed it as we read, he kind of goes back and forth then in verses 5 through 8 of, of those in the flesh and those in the spirit and those in the flesh and those in the spirit. And instead of going through those verses and, and doing it that way, I want to do it just a little differently this morning by just taking the time and, and, and going first through non-Christians and then going through the Christians. What is true of a non-Christian? What is true of a Christian? about or concerning what Paul says here in these verses. And in these verses, uh, we're first going to look at what he says about non-Christians. What is true of them? What does it mean that they walk not according to the Spirit, but that they walk according to the flesh? What does that mean? And that's his focus in these verses. He focuses more on the negative side of things here. So we'll see that there are uh, more things. We'll see five things, actually, that Paul lays out here regarding the unbeliever. Five things that are true about the unbeliever that Paul mentions here. The first thing is that they set their mind on the things of the flesh. Look at verse 5. He says, for, so we know that he's continuing what he's been talking about. He says, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. And we'll stop there. Now, your ESV Bibles, if you're reading that, says, for those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. The original simply says, those who are according to the flesh. Uh, that's a little clearer, I think. They are according to the flesh. They are fleshly. Again, this is a description. Uh, the ESV is trying to convey that when it says that they are those who live according to the flesh. And it's an, an ongoing type of thing because it is a description. It is true of them. Now, if you remember or if you don't remember, when we read about the flesh, especially in Paul's writings, we are not talking about, and Paul is not talking about, specifically about our bodies. There's a connection to it, certainly, but flesh and spirit, that, that dichotomy that Paul uses, is not the same as body and spirit, 
or body and soul. It's not, the flesh isn't referring to just the, the physical part of us. But the flesh, as Paul uses that phrase, is his way of speaking about our old nature. It's his way of talking about that realm in which we used to live, the realm which that old nature called home. It is to be living and walking and being in accordance with the world. Under the headship of the first Adam, we've discussed this concept as we've been going through all the way from chapter 5 up to where we're at now. When we talk about our flesh, Paul is talking about our pre-conversion state. It is how we were, but are not anymore. And Paul is saying that that such people, non-Christians, as he's speaking here about them, they do this. They set their minds on fleshly things. They do that because that is what they are. They are fleshly people. They are people outside of Christ. All of us were at one time. But they are of the flesh as opposed to being of the Spirit. They are fleshly people, and therefore Paul is just saying they act like that. That is their world. The flesh, the things of the world. They dwell there, they live there, they operate there. Paul says that they set their minds on the things that are part of that realm, part of that world. To set your mind on something is to be dominated by it, to be immersed in it, to be enveloped by it. And they are enveloped by, immersed in the things of the flesh. That's the extent of their horizon. It is the the filter through which they see and they think and they do everything that they see and they think and they speak and they do. Unbelievers, by nature, have worldly mindsets because the world is their home. The world is where their loyalty lies, Paul is saying. They love the world and the things of the world, Paul says. They love darkness rather than light. And Paul refers to those things as the things of the flesh. And it refers to anything that is contrary to the things of God, to the things of the Spirit. We hear the term, read the term, speak of the term, uh, the things of the flesh, the sins of the flesh, the deeds of the flesh... And we can very, we ought very often think of, of physical sins, particularly we think of sexual sins when we think of the things of the flesh. But that is not at all everything that is included. That is included, or those are included, but that's not everything. The things of the flesh, the works of the flesh is much broader. Paul gives us a good starting list over in Galatians chapter 5, where he says, now the works of the flesh are evident. And he begins the way we might think, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, but then he moves on to idolatry, sorcery, enmity, that means hostility towards others, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, he says, and things like these. Those are the things of the flesh. Those are the things that occupy the minds of unbelievers. They are the things that occupied our minds when we were of the flesh, when we walked in the flesh, according to the flesh. So these things are really anything that appeals to the desire of a human in a way that is contrary to the teaching of Scripture. And it's not just outward actions. We talked about that as we looked at the law this morning, didn't we? The Tenth Commandment specifically speaks of that sort of root that is in us that that draws us on to, to do other sins. That sin is committed in our mind 
first. Jesus taught that in the Sermon on the Mount. He said that it's not only those who murder who are murderers, but those who are consumed with anger and hatred towards one another. He said not only those who have affairs are adulterers, but those who lust after others. He says it is those who do not keep their word. It is those who seek revenge and retaliation. It is those who do not love their enemies. It is, it is that that is someone setting their mind on the things of the flesh because those are the things of the flesh. And that, Paul says here, is the default condition. It is the life of those who are or who live according to the flesh. And it is because they are in that condition, it is because they, they are according to the flesh, they are fleshly, that they set their mind on the things of the flesh. Their being according to the flesh, their being fleshly, is the cause of then the activity of setting their mind on the flesh. He moves on, and the second thing that he says is that the condition of their mindset springs from a state of spiritual death, and that's in verse 6. He says, for to set the mind on the flesh is death. This verse sort of parallels verse 5, picks up what it says there. Those who are unbelievers, who are fleshly, are of the flesh, outside of Christ, they set their minds, they set their affections, they set their attention on deeds of the flesh. And to do that is a reflection of someone who is in a state of death. It is indicative of someone who is dead in their sin. And isn't that how Paul speaks of, of this, this situation over in Ephesians chapter 2? Paul says, you were, speaking to Christians, he says, you were dead. Here in Romans chapter 8, he's saying they are dead. But Paul said, you were dead, and we could say they are dead, what Paul's saying here, taken from Ephesians 2, in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world. There's that fleshliness, there's that setting one's mind, uh, following the prince of the power of the air. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That's what it means to be dead in sin. That's what it means to be in the flesh, living according to the flesh. The one who lives in that way is one who is dead to God, who is dead to righteousness, who is dead while they live. Spiritually dead people. And, of course, it is also true that these things will lead to death. They will end in death. Not just physical death, of course, but spiritual death. And if that is left unremedied through coming to faith in Christ, eventually it will lead to eternal death. The non-Christian, Paul is saying, is constantly digging his own spiritual grave from the inside. It is what he does. He, he knows nothing different because he himself is dead in his sin. Sometimes we, we, we can't understand why people act the way they do, but we need to think they act the way they do because that's the way they are. We shouldn't be surprised when unbelievers act like unbelievers. We wish they wouldn't, but we shouldn't be surprised that they do. Because the condition of their mindset springs from a state, Paul says, of spiritual death. The third thing that we read is that their minds are hostile to God. Look at verse 7. He says it, For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Stop there. That too is part of the non-Christian condition. The one who is dead and who therefore has a mind that is set on the flesh, is in a state of hostility toward God. He, she is an enemy of God. 
Paul, earlier in the letter, talked about that. He said that, when, that there is no one who seeks God. He said there is no fear of God before their eyes. It's the same thing Paul, that uh, James said in his epistle. In James 4.4, 4, he said, Do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God or hostility with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So their minds are hostile to God. And then their expression of that hostility is the fourth thing that Paul says about non-Christians, still there in verse 7. The mindset on the flesh, the worldly non-Christian mindset, does not submit to God's law, he says. It does not submit to God's law. This is sort of the primary yardstick of someone uh, who has spiritual life or spiritual death is how they deal with God's law. What did Jesus say? If you love me, keep my commandments. And of course, this is the, the primary evidence that they are hostile to God, the fact that they don't. They have minds that are disobedient to, to God's law. They do not obey God's law. They, they do not submit themselves to God. They do not humble themselves to God because they are hostile to God. And what's more, Paul says, indeed, such a person with such a mind cannot. Why? Well, because they are dead to sin. They are dead in sin. Their behavior, again, is derived from their condition. They live as enemies of God in God's own world. They are slaves of righteousness. They are bound up by sin. Their mind is wired wrongly, one of the effects of the fall, such that they cannot deal properly with what God says. So it's not just that they will not come to God, but until He works in them, they cannot. There's no one who understands, Paul said. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says that the natural person, read there, the worldly person, the fleshly person, does not accept the things of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them, because they're spiritually discerned, and they are spiritually dead. So much less than is he able to, to submit to him. So the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. That's their demonstration of their hostility, is a refusal to submit. And as a result, verse 8 sums this all up when it says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. This is the sad result of such a state. A man who is of the flesh, a man who is separated from God, separated from Christ, a man whose mind is thus occupied with the things of this world, one who hates God, who is hostile to God, at enmity with Him, such a man cannot please God, cannot be pleasing to God. In verse 7, Paul said, man, apart from grace, the grace of the gospel is at war with God, is hostile to God. In verse 8, Paul says that a man apart from the gift of saving faith cannot please God. Hebrews 11.6 said the same thing. It says, without faith, it is impossible to please God. And that is the state of a man who walks according to the flesh. pretty sad state, a pretty, a pretty terrible situation to be in. How then, one might ask, if you're hearing this this morning and you're not a Christian, I pray that you are asking yourself this question now. If all of this is true, if that is my state, who can be saved? How can I be saved? Well, it's exactly through that faith that I just mentioned. But you say, well, yeah, but you said that I can't please God. You said that I'm incapable of any good. So how can I come up with this faith? Someone once asked Jesus, what good thing must I do to inherit eternal life? 
The question is, you can't. You can't work up this faith. You can't come up with it. But the bigger answer to it, and the good news, is that this faith is the gift of God. God gives faith. And if you are desirous of coming to Christ, Christ will not cast you out. If you desire Christ, come to Christ. If you desire Christ, sincerely desire the Christ that is presented in the Scripture, desire to humble yourself before Him and and come to Him, then God has given you that gift of faith. Believe. Exercise it. Christ will not cast you away. The gift is given. Jesus Himself said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. And He's speaking especially there in the realm of salvation. He's not talking about the way some people like to use that term today and say, well, that means anything. So that's the unbeliever. What does Paul say about Christians? What about those who, verse 4, have had the righteous requirement of the law fulfilled on their behalf by Jesus Christ? What about those who he speaks of there? What about the ones who walk according to the Spirit? Well, as Paul has laid out here in verses 5 through 8 in such an orderly way, we're, we're not really surprised to learn that the truth about one who is in Christ is just the opposite of the one who is outside of Christ, the one who is in the flesh. And these things are attributable to the working of the Holy Spirit. And again, this, these are all found in the same verses as Paul goes back and forth between the two. Um, but what does Paul say about the Christian? And as I said, he's focusing on the negative in these verses. So we only have two things, really, that he mentions here about the one who walks according to the Spirit. The first thing in verse 5 is that they set their mind on the things of the Spirit. We saw those who who are in the flesh, they set their mind on the things of the flesh. But now in verse 5, he says in the second half of the verse, but those who live according to the Spirit set their mind on the things of the Spirit. And it's the same thing here. It's those who are according to the Spirit that do this. And of course, you see there a capital S in the word Spirit, which tells you that Paul's talking about the Holy Spirit. The believer sets their minds on the things of the Spirit of God. Just as with the unbeliever, all of that concentration on the flesh and on the deeds of the flesh, that was all natural in the same way as those who are now delivered from that, who are brought into the kingdom of God, those who set their minds, or those who are of the Spirit, set their minds on the things of the Spirit. That is natural for them. That is the work of God in their lives, that they set their minds on the things of the Spirit of God. Well, what are those? Well, if, as we learned a few moments ago, the things of the flesh are those things that are contrary to the things of God, then these things of the Spirit are those things that are in line with the teaching of God's Word, the teaching of the Holy Spirit in the Holy Scriptures. Now, we have to be careful as we think of that because we're going to go on and say, okay, this is what is descriptive of the Christian is that they set their mind on these things. But that doesn't mean that we just set our minds on theology. In fact, that can be a great danger to reduce, to reduce it to that. To think that by knowing our doctrine, that we are therefore pursuing and setting our minds on the things of the Spirit. That's deceptive. Theology is never meant to be an end in itself. But always, always to draw us to a practical response of love and worship to God. That's the purpose of theology. That's the purpose of doctrine. So we don't want to make that error and think that it just means we know the Bible. We also, when we see this phrase, to set one's mind on the things of the Spirit, there are a lot of people today who set their minds on spiritual things. 
But see, that's not quite the same. There are a lot of people who set their minds on things that the Spirit appears to be doing. That's not right either. It's not a pursuit of what we could call spiritual theater. You know what I mean? We see it all over. These fleshly demonstrations that that many engage in and then blame that on the Spirit or attribute it to the Spirit. But the things of the Spirit, as Paul speaks of them here, refers to all of the things that the Bible teaches us that we should be focused on. It's not hard. Specifically, Christian, this morning we should be consciously studying as godly palmologists. Now, that's not the study of clean and soft skin. That would be a palmologist. This is a palmologist. That's a person who studies fruit. Specifically, we should be students of the fruit of the Spirit. It comes out of the same passage that we looked at those deeds of the flesh that Paul gives. He gives us the fruit of the Spirit. We should be devotees of those things. Our minds as Christians should be and will be set on the things that Paul mentions there in Galatians 5. The fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. That's our, that's our realm. That's the realm of the Christian. That's where the mind of the Christian should be focused. Our mind should be set on the things that Paul mentions in Philippians 4.8. He says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. And that is what the Christian does. He thinks on these things. Intellectual, moral, and practical. A Christian's focus will be on the things of God. Because, and this is the second thing in this section, because these things arise from, in fact they are, life and peace. Verse 6. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit, all those things we just talked about, is life and peace. We Christians have peace with God, objectively, right? Romans 5.1. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And for us to set our mind and to focus our thoughts to live in the world of the things of the Spirit is life and peace. It leads us to life and peace. It contributes to our life and our peace as we, as we understand and as we appreciate what God has done and as we respond in thankfulness. So as you can see, and as Paul means to convey here, the life of the Christian and the life of the non-Christian are diametrically opposed as opposite as can be imagined. They have nothing in common. Paul asked, what does does dark and light have in common? The answer is nothing. There's an old song, completely different context, that says two different worlds, we live in two different worlds. And we do. That is the case for believers and unbelievers. For the Christian... We have a mind focused on, dominated by God's Word and rejoicing in God's work, seeing seeing and seeking the increase of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives, which brings life more abundantly. And peace, the peace that comes in, in enjoying to the fullest that peace with God which we objectively have through our justification. The peace that comes from the fact of knowing that there is therefore now no condemnation for us. 
for the non-Christian. They have a mind focused on following the course of this world, living in the passions of the flesh, carrying out the desires of the body, storing up wrath, refusing and unable to submit to God's law, all leading to eternal death. Those are the choices. Everything, every religion, every philosophy, every moral code, whether one realizes or not, it all reduces down to those two options. Two masters. You can't serve both, but you do serve one. The question is Paul has asked before, and we put again this morning, which master are you serving? So Paul takes these verses and explains how different Christians and non-Christians are. He explains how, how they are, in fact, living different lives, living in different worlds, as it were. And now, after he does that, he turns his attention back to, to those to whom he writes. And through God's will, that includes us as well. And as he turns his attention to his readers, he now focuses on the spiritual benefits of the Christian. That's our second point this morning. The spiritual benefits of the Christian. First we saw an essential distinction between Christians and non-Christians. Now we see the spiritual benefits of the Christians. We've kind of seen it as Paul has kind of worked up to it, but now he's going to assure his readers. He concluded verse 8 with a very sad and negative statement that those who are in the flesh cannot please God. But now he turns in a decidedly more positive tone. Now he says in verse 9, you, however, stop there, you readers, you in the church, you in the church here this morning, he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. So he says to his readers, he, he looks at them as members of the church and, and puts that in the best light. The assumption is that those who are sitting in the church, a majority of them, are true believers. And he says, you are not in the flesh. You're not in that category, that sad, sad category of those who are unable to submit to God's law, unwilling to submit to God's law, hostile to God, cannot please God, that's not the category you're in. He gives that that categorical statement of fact here in reference to all of the above. Paul says, you, that's not you. You, Christian, are in the Spirit. You're in that category. You find yourself in that group. If, he says, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, he's not casting doubt on that by the way that he phrases that, but he's stating what is the case. He's stating that that's true. That a Christian has the Spirit of God dwelling in them. We don't have time this morning, but you could look at 1 Corinthians 3.16 and 1 Corinthians 6.19, 2 Timothy 1.14 and other places to see that that is the case. You are a recipient of this blessing, as is the case, we could read it, if the Spirit of God dwells in you. I think by calling Him the Spirit of God here instead of just the Holy Spirit, by the way, they're the same person. The Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit. But by doing that, Paul's reminding us of the source of this great blessing, that it is God who has given the Spirit to dwell in us. And Paul says that Spirit, the second person of the Trinity, the second person of the Godhead, in fact dwells in you because he dwells in every Christian. I remember growing up in in charismatic churches and the debates that we had the differences of opinion that were going on and would crop up from time to time between the Spirit, the Spirit, and, and the Spirit being in and on and upon and among His people. 
and discussions about whether the Holy Spirit indwells every Christian or is that only true once they've received the second blessing, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Well, Paul makes it very clear here. He says, you are not in the flesh but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, then this, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Every Christian has the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, living in them, dwelling in them. Paul says, if you are in the Spirit, the Spirit dwells in you, and anyone that does not have the Spirit does not belong to Christ. Very simple. There's no such thing as a spiritless Christian. And notice here that he's called the Spirit of Christ. What a beautiful sort of Trinitarian construction Paul builds up here. The, the Spirit and God and Christ all together here in reference to indwelling the believer. And that too is a, an amazing thing to, to think of and to understand. That the Holy Spirit, who is the Spirit of God the Father and who is also the Spirit of the Son, indwells every believer. I think of Jesus' prayer on our behalf that's recorded in John 17 called the High Priestly Prayer. Uh, Listen to how Jesus prayed. He said, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So he's praying for us. He says that they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. So that, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. You, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. You know, we really don't, we can't comprehend exactly how all of that works. And we certainly don't want to take this into the area of what's called apotheosis or, or, or divinization or deification and, and say that we in any way become divine. We don't. That's heresy. But there is a degree of relation and interrelationship as the Spirit dwells in us, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ. Jesus in John 14, 23 gave this. He said, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. So through all of this, We are indwelt, it's true to say, not just by the Spirit, but by the Father and the Son as well. This is true of of every Christian, and it is explicitly not true of anyone who is not a Christian, because, Paul says, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if the Spirit of God does dwell in you this morning, know that that brings about countless benefits. Well, Paul said in Ephesians that it brings about every spiritual blessing. And Paul brings out two, very briefly here. Both have to do with life. In verses 10 and 11, Paul says in verse 10, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If Christ is in you, which he's just said that he is, if you're a Christian, then he gives and he brings and he produces spiritual life in you. God has given eternal life. Christ has given eternal life. It is yours. And now he works that life in you through his spirit. Paul says, although the body is dead because of sin, it it is dead. It is subject to death. It is passing away. But the focus here is on the second phrase. He says, the spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit is the source of life in you, is what he's saying. The Holy Spirit is working his life in you, generating that life. He is the agent of eternal life that's promised and procured by Christ. It's now being unfolded in you day by day through the work of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of life, it is, we learned from Romans 8 too, that has set you free from the law of sin and death. The second thing is that 
the work of the Spirit doesn't end in us even when our physical life ends. There's more to come. And that's verse 11. He says, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, again, if, it's a Christ, if you're a Christian, that is true of you. He says, if that's the case, then He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. See, He gives spiritual life. He works spiritual life in us, and Paul says, and at the end, He will work physical life in the resurrection of your bodies. We are reminded that this is done through His Spirit who dwells in you. It's so wonderful to see how God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, are all agreed to bring His people to glory. Justified, sanctified, glorified, raised in spirit and raised in body on the last day. And beloved, as that is true of us, if that is true of you this morning, let us rejoice in the knowledge of that great truth. Paul has more to say about that, and we'll look at that next week. For now, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for the spirit that you have given to us, for the, for the myriad of things that, that he does in working for and in your people. We thank you, Lord, that we, by your grace, have been rescued from a life of walking in the flesh and have been set on our feet walking in the Spirit. We thank you that you have given to us new minds, minds that are seeking the things of the Spirit. And we pray that you would strengthen that in us, for we know that 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 works even in the realm of our own remaining corruption so that we very often don't see the work that you're doing, the work that you've done. We pray, Father, that we would seek your Spirit, seek the things of the Spirit. Let that be our obsession, to be obsessed, Father, with with what you've done and what the Spirit desires of us and is doing in us. And we ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.